We'll read the uh, entire uh, Psalm 63 together and then we'll pray. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Our God, we are here again by your mercies to uh, hear your word, uh, to process it intellectually, to become acquainted with words and ideas in the scripture. Uh, but we know, Lord, that nothing will be done, nothing will be written upon our hearts to truly uh, persevere and live in the faith uh, unless your Holy Spirit comes and does his work as well. We ask for it, Lord, since you promised uh, to give the Holy Spirit uh, to us freely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Uh, we have to go back to uh, late May uh, for the last message in Psalm 63. So basically uh, a short review, and that will bring us up to our uh, passage for this evening. Uh, I gave the wrong uh, numbers in the bulletin. It's really 5 through 11, not 6 through 11. Uh, but by way of review, David is in the wilderness. He's being pursued by Absalom. Uh, there has been provision brought to him uh, because they are uh, thirsty and weary. And his uh, picture of his soul thirst is a picture of very real uh, hunger and thirst for the people uh, that are with him. Notice also that it is a psalm of the soul. Uh, verse 1, uh, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirst for you, and then two verses we'll look at this evening. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And verse 8, my soul uh, clings to you. It's a psalm of the soul, a psalm of spiritual desire uh, and resolve. It also, since it's a psalm, it is picturesque, it is purposeful, uh, and it is poetic. There are uh, quite a number of images so if we walk through the first eight verses, there's earnest seeking. He has looked and beheld God in his sanctuary. He says, my lips will praise you. I'll bless you. I'll lift up my hands in worship. My soul will be satisfied, and that will issue in praise also. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. And then he affirms, my soul will cling to you. Uh, the outline of the psalm could be uh, verses 1 through 4, the soul in the wilderness. Uh, uh, there's strong desire uh, 
chapter, uh, verse 5 through 8, the soul in satisfaction. He remembers, he meditates, he's calm. And then finally, uh, the soul in conf the soul's confident of victory over enemies, verses 9 through 11. Uh, our outline for this evening is soul satisfaction found in verses 5 through 7, soul purpose in, in verse 8, and soul confidence in 9 to 11. So first, soul satisfaction, verses 5 through 7 can be looked at as one thought. He is going through uh, the satisfaction of his soul with pictures uh, and comparisons and also when and why his soul is satisfied. First of all, the simile of satisfaction, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. That's the uh, ESV. My soul will be satisfied as if I had this large meal. It's the second time he's had a comparison or a simile. He said uh, in verse 1, as in a dry land where there is no water. Here's the picture. I feel like this as if I was in a dry land. Here's this. I feel that when God draws close to me, it's as if I just had a large meal. He's still in the wilderness. He's still hungry and he's still thirsty. But he says, my soul will be satisfied with God as if I had a very good and filling meal. We do it frequently. We have a meal and then we say, wow, that was delicious. Or we say, I'm stuffed. And I was challenged to think, am I satisfied with my communion with God like a great meal? Would I say, God, I want to be stuffed and satisfied with having you in communion. I know we have to eat. I know we enjoy food. I know we make those comments. Sometimes they are complimentaries to somebody who has worked very hard to prepare. But do I enjoy and delight in my communion with God as I would when somebody puts one of my favorite meals in front of me and say the same are we satisfied with our devotions? Are we stuffed with our meditation uh, on God? And then comes the praise of satisfaction. He says, my soul is satisfied, just like I had a good meal, and I'm going to praise the Lord. My mouth will praise. I will use joyful lips. Uh, where do you receive that food? Where do you receive that that fat and that food that he's just talking about, it came from your mouth. And what do you do when you have, you say, uh, my host, whoever made this, this is delicious. This is a delicious dessert that you made. This is a delicious meal that you made. Compliments to the chef, we might say. David says, my soul will rejoice like that. And what's going to happen to me? I'm going to say, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord for what he has done. The contents are praise and joy. Uh, we know uh, that David's heart was full of praise. It, it is a theme in the Psalms. There's many, many themes in the Psalms. Uh, but it's the only time that joyful lips uh, is used. And I think it corresponds to saying, my mouth is satisfied like I had this meal. It's all on your lips. It's all right there. Uh, and he says, joyful lips uh, instead of uh, joyful 
joyful noise. Uh, joy and being joyful is about God's work, not man's personality. Do you ever meet a, a person that's happy all the time? I remember somebody commented on a coworker. They said he's never had a bad day in his whole life. He would go around singing zippity doodah all day long. He would be like, stop being so happy almost. But it's not about personality. It's about God's work. It's about our salvation. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 and following is a good example. Uh, Peter gives us this beautiful picture of salvation. God's given you everything. And it's unfading and undefiled and reserved in heaven for you. You, you, you think it'll never go away. And then he says, verse 6, in this you rejoice. But then he says, well, there's going to be trials. But in verse 8, he puts the other part of the parentheses to the rejoicing. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is what? Inexpressible and filled with glory. And David in his difficulty and David out there in the wilderness being pursued takes time to think about what God has done. And he says, my lips are going to praise you. My lips are going to give you uh, uh, glory and praise for what's going on. He also says in verse 6, the time of the reflection. The time of the reflection. And he uses two words of thought. He says, when I remember and I meditate. When he remembers, he thinks back or he brings to mind. This is not one thought. This is not our, oh, I remember, I got to do this. I remember, I got to go do this. No, this is him looking back and saying, like, a, 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 well, we're all older couples here. Like an older couple would say, we have a lot of memories. And sometimes we'll do that at the table. Sometimes we'll sit and think, remember the time of this. Remember when this child was born. Remember when we went here. Remember when we went on vacation. Remember when we did these things. We have lots of memories. David says, I praise the Lord, but sometimes I just remember what he's done for me. I just meditate and I scroll back in my mind and I hold those things in focus and I think of those things for a period of time. If the Lord hadn't been with me, then this may have happened. If the Lord hadn't done this, then this may have happened. It's not one thought that he's thinking, but many. I will remember and meditate and then the object is you. He's mentally focused on God. He tells God, I'm going to praise and I'm going to remember and meditate on what you have done, what you are doing. He also gives the time. He says, on my bed and in the watches of the night. And we are on our beds frequently. And the watches of the night doesn't mean that he's up all night, every night, but at different periods of time. A watch was so many hours, then came another watch and another watch and another watch uh, uh, till morning. This was a pattern uh, that is expressed in the Psalms because we can have fellowship with God at any time. I wake up at night, I'm disturbed, I'm thinking, I'm tossing and turning. I should turn my thoughts to God. I know people who can't sleep. They say, I'm, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to pray. 
uh, it may be not the, the best time to pop the TV on and get stimulated, but uh, David is saying, look, I, when I wake up, I meditate and remember what God is doing. Psalm 77, 4 through 6, it, it, he says, it's like you hold my eyelids open and let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Psalm 119, 55, I remember your name in the night, O Yahweh, and I will keep your law. Well, that's pretty hard to disobey God when you're laying in bed. No, that's not what he means. He's saying, I'll think about it at night, but when I get up, I'm going to be resolved to, to keep your law. I'm thinking, I'm thinking in my bed, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to meditate on God and I'm going to follow his law. Uh, not like uh, I'm laying in bed, so I, I, I have three minutes. I haven't broken God's commandments. No, that's not it. He's meditating with the purpose to obey. <clears throat> he says in uh, verse 148 of Psalm 119, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Uh, that would be a good thing for us to do. Uh, I remember uh, a testimony of... Uh, Joni Erickson Tata one day when she was down and I was thoroughly and completely amazed uh, by listening to that. It was my good old friend, Refnet. But she said one day she was down. She uh, not only, you know the story, but she ended up having uh, cancer as well as not being able to walk or do anything. And she said one day she was just down and she said I had to take time to think of all the promises of God. And she thought of the promises of God until her spirits were lifted up. The cancer didn't go away. She had uh, a double mastectomy. She was, in a sense, miraculously saved even to be at the conference that she spoke at. But she said, I'm gonna think of your, your promises. And uh, it fits with Philippians, doesn't it? Whatever is pure and lovely. And that's what we should be thinking about. And here she's, she literally said, here I am strapped down with my wheelchair in my van. I can't do anything for myself. Can't even get out of bed. Can't even move unless somebody comes and helps her to do everything in her whole life. And she says, I thought about the promises of God. He says, on the bed, I'm ready for rest. I'm in the posture of rest all through the watches of the night. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, numerous uh, men in Christian his history have used bedtime uh, as a reflection time, a time of spiritual self-assessment and prayer, uh, of thoughts of God and my actions. Not, not just stay awake in the night, not just say, oh, no, here's another restless night, another sleepless night. Uh, George Whitfield had a list of 15 questions that he would ask himself every day. Have I done this? Have I done that? Have I displayed charity? Have I loved God? Have I prayed? Have I drawn closer to God? Uh, they prepared themselves to go to bed that way. I would, I would suggest that somebody like Whitfield would wake up still thinking about those questions or verses or Psalms. And then in verse 7, this is the end of this thought of David. He gives the reason, for you have been my help and I'm in the shadow of your wings. Have been my help. You've helped me in the past, not just once, not just, oh, thanks, you remember the time God helped us? No, this is multiple memories. This is multiple memories of God's help. And the shadow of the wings, 
is, is, is all over the place, really, but it's talking about protection and safety in the shadow of your wings. You can see many, many, many examples of creatures that have motherly protection or fatherly protection over their young. <coughs> here, here, it's the bird. And the bird spreads its wings and the little ones go underneath and it just holds them, holds them there like that. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, uh, Psalm 17, 8. Do it on purpose, Lord. Protect me. Cover me with those wings. Psalm 36, 7. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's a natural picture of God's uh, care. Psalm 57 and verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until when? Uh, till the storms pass by. Till the problem is over. Till, till things uh, uh, are better. It's stated positively in Psalm 91 and verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions. The pinions is the very uh, end right here, the strongest part. He'll bring you that close, right underneath. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Two different pictures. I got the shield, I got this buckler, it, it protects me. And I'm also under his wings. Two pictures in Psalm 91. God purposes to protect his people. And then notice the freedom of protection. I'm safe. I'm safe. God's taking care of me. I'm safe. God's working things out. I can relax. And what does David say? Uh, verse 7. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I'm safe. I'm protected. I'm still singing to God, though. Right? I'm not, I'm not looking out and saying, yeah, yeah, I'm safe under God's wings to, to enemies. I take them seriously. He takes them seriously. He says, he says, I'm safe. I'm protected. And you're going to get more praise. It, it causes me to enjoy the freedom of protection. I will sing for joy. I will sing for joy. And you, you see it in the psalm. If you read, you read through it, it's like, this guy's always praising the Lord. Right? Another kind of person that we might say, well, he's kind of annoying. All he talks about is praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But, but that's what all he's talking about. I'm, I'm in the wilderness, and I think of seeing you in your sanctuary sanctuary and verse 3 says my lips will praise you and uh, I'm going to add to it I'm going to lift up my hands too I'm going to get real spiritual verse 5 I've been satisfied like with this great meal what's the what's the what's going to happen my mouth will praise you with joyful lips verse 7 you've been my help and in the shadow of your wings what will I do I'll sing for joy oh, the guy's always praising the Lord I remember reading a, a, a book in a a Sunday school uh, context. It was about this guy, Billy Bray. And Billy Bray was one of those people that said, praise the Lord. And one of the things that he said was that you could put him in a barrel, but he would still sing praises 
out the bunghole. I guess that's uh, where they tap it to take the pressure off. He says, I'll still praise out of that little hole, even if you put me in a barrel and shut the lid on. Uh, David says, there's no occasion that happens. Destitute, I think about his power and his glory. Praise the Lord. I think of him on my, my bed. Uh, I, I, I think of my soul satisfied. Praise the Lord. I think of all the help that he's given me. I think of these powerful wings that God's demonstrated. They, they're literally over me and protecting me, he says, and praise the Lord. And he constantly prays. He shows us the freedom of protection and the praising constantly goes up to God. But then our second major heading is his soul purpose. Soul purpose, S-O-U-L purpose. I, I missed... I missed a quote from Hawker about praying at any time, and I, I missed underscoring that. If you can pray in the middle of the night, it shows you the privileges that you have to pray, doesn't it? What's your access? Oh, I, I only can go when they have morning matins at the church. I only can go when they read this at this. No, no, no. <coughs> Three o'clock in the morning, you could say praise the Lord. Three o'clock in the morning, you can praise the Lord. Hawker says, both night and day, open sources of comfort when Jesus is present and when Jesus sanctifies. Hawker always brings Jesus into it. Even in the night. What a, oh, I, I had my devotions already. We don't have to think like that, do we? Oh, I had devotions this morning. Now I woke up, it's 2.30. What am I going to do? You could just start having more devotions, impromptu devotions. Well, I don't have my card. I don't have my Spurgeon book. I don't have my devotional book. Uh, just let it go, right? Just, just praise the Lord. Think of these things. You can rehearse this psalm. So that's me catching up on the notes. Uh, soul purpose, he says, my soul clings to you. It's a final engagement of his soul. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 8. There's purpose and a posture, he says, cling to you. The, the New American, the, the NIV says, stays close. Uh, the Geneva uses the old word cleaves, right? Cleave is one of those words. It means to cut in half or stick close to. I don't know how it means that, but that's what it does. ASV, King James, New King James, follow hard after. That's, that's an idea too. That, that's picturesque. My soul... <laughs> clings to you and stays with you. Uh, Benjamin Bedome in, uh, in the Treasury of David uh, says there's four things that this will show us. There's a previous acquaintance with God. There's a previous acquaintance with God. You, you don't engage yourself or cleave to somebody or pursue them unless you know them. You don't just start following somebody somewhere in Titusville. They'll be like, what are you doing? No, you have to know the person. I cleave to, I cleave to my wife. I pursue hard after a relationship with, with her. There's a purpose and intent there. It shows a previous acquaintance with him. It's expressive, he says, secondly, of ardent and intense desire. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just cleaving to you. You get the idea. Would, would you cleave a little further away? Could you back off in your cleaving? Do, do you understand? It, it's, it's expressive of ardent and intense desire. Uh, thirdly, he says it shows 
laborious exertion. I'm cleaving. I'm doing this on purpose. I like that one. The, I'm following hard after. How, how you're tailgating God. You're following hard after. Wherever he leads and goes, that's where I'm going. I'm sticking close to God. And finally, uh, Bedom says there's perseverance in seeking. I'm never going to stop. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, I remembered one thing God did for me. He doesn't say uh, every once in a while when I wake up at night. And now he says, my pursuit is relentless. It's persevering in seeking. A and that's what we need to do uh, in our life. Notice how he attaches God's care to verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Two pictures together. I'm pursuing, but you're holding. It's very interesting, isn't it? Your right hand holds me as I pursue. Uh, we've talked about it in the, in the interesting phrase in Haggai that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. The hand shows something different than the mouth. The, the hand is active. There's movement. There's purpose. What do I do? I pick things up. I move things. I use it all the time. It is very interesting. We don't, we don't have to think about it, do we? It's an amazing thing. What does God's hand do to his people? It automatically goes to them. Turn the light switch on. Pick up that. You don't stand there and say, well, I'm done with this page of notes. I've got to move my hand and push it over and change the page. We don't even think about it. David says, your hand is active. Your right hand, the most powerful hand, the most strong hand is active for me. It holds me. I'm clinging to you, but your right hand holds me up. Psalm 77:10. The question is to God, have you forgotten? Have you shut us all up? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. There was a time in his life when he wondered where the hand was. Psalm 80, verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man you made strong for yourself, a messianic prophecy. God's powerful working is for us. God's powerful working is for me. It's personal. I remember what he did. I meditate on what he did. And he holds me. Oh, well, God just takes care of everybody. No, it's personal. Your right hand upholds me. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. How, how much more powerful could God's hand be than, than the psalmist there says, he's worked out all salvation just with your right hand and your arm? Yes, that's God's power. Psalm 118 and verse 16. He doubles it. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. There's no other right hand like God's. Yahweh's right hand is exalted. That's the hand that holds me up. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. If I look at my salvation, what would I say? This is a valiant effort that you made, Lord. This is an amazing thing that I could be saved and then I could be upheld uh, throughout my life. Uh, Psalm 138 and uh, verse 7, you will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand 
will save me. I'm not only upheld, but he stretches that same most powerful hand uh, across uh, to save. David's support comes from God's powerful right hand. God's hand upholds and supports him spiritually at all times. And then, our final heading, soul confidence. Soul confidence. This helps to put all these other things in uh, perspective. Verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life. Now, that in the context is an absolute correct assessment of the danger that he is in. Absalom is seeking his life. We'll see. He was actually given counsel. Just go get him and kill him. Wipe him out. Those who seek to destroy my life. Notice his confidence in the three shells. S-H-A-L-L. They shall go down into the depths of the earth. They're going to be killed. They'll, be, they'll go to Sheol, the netherworld. They'll be defeated and buried. Secondly, they'll be given over to the power of the sword. They will lose in a battle and die by the sword. Very picturesque. And, and you know, David knew all about swords. Saul is slain as thousands. David is ten thousands. He knew uh, about battle. And finally, they shall be a portion for the jackals. And that's just a, a scavenger animal that's out there in the wilderness. Jackals work together. Uh, they are predatory. They're carnivorous. They hunt in packs. They come after anything uh, that's left and uh, pick at it and, uh, and uh, just take it and tear it apart. But to, uh, to further put some... Uh, uh, flesh on this, so to speak, or to, to look at the historical unfolding, uh, please turn <coughs> to 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 16, I'll just give you some uh, overview of, of what's happened. Uh, this is the historical folding of the situation that David is in. And on the one side, think of all his praises. Think of what he said about having a, a, a meal and uh, his soul being satisfied. And then think about this conspiracy. Second Samuel uh, uh, 15 is Absalom's conspiracy. Uh, second Samuel 15, 12, he sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor. And in that verse, it says the uh, conspiracy grew strong and it also kept on increasing. David's already out in the wilderness. Chapter 16, 1 through 5, he's brought food by Ziba. Uh, chapter 16, 5 through 14, Shimei curses. And the, uh, uh, the end of that chapter says they, they were out there in the wilderness and, and they were weary. Chapter 16, 15 through 23, Absalom enters Jerusalem. He, he takes over control. And, and Ahithophel... Uh, gives this wicked counsel. He says, go make a public display, get all your father's concubines, was set up a tent, and you go into the father's concubines in front of the people. Let them know there's been a political shift. It's public humiliation. 
It's his craftiness, it's politics, it's a demonstration uh, of uh, power. And then, and then Hushai is introduced. Hushai was a counselor of David, and he is actually still on David's side, but he comes up to Absalom and says, long live the king. And he actually checks him on it. He says, well, wait a minute, how come you're coming here? And he says, oh, I served your father, and I'm going to serve you. It would, it would be wrong for me not to serve the king. But he really has some other ideas. Uh, notice uh, 2 Samuel 16, 23, uh, about this man, uh, Ahithophel. Uh, <clears throat> now, in the days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. There's a history that this guy has, and that's an amazing statement, isn't it? That's an amazing statement. Ahithophel, what's your counsel on this? Here's what I think you should do. And that was taken as if it was the word of God himself. Uh, that, is the, uh, that is the high point of his counsel. But it was revered by David and Absalom as well. Where's Ahithophel? He's over there. He's in this town. Go get him. Right? My father's kicked out. I'm going to get his best counselor and I'll join together. Now, just so, to summarize, think of everything that's against David. The conspiracy is very strong and increasing. He leaves the cities. Literally, they're running for their lives. They have limited provisions. He receives cursing. He's publicly humiliated, both in his situation and in the, uh, uh, the concubine thing. And his own counselor is against him now, the best counselor that there was. Uh, so that's the situation. So then, in uh, 2 Samuel 17.1, Ahithophel has a new plan. This is his plan. Give me 12,000 men. I'm going to pursue them while they're weary in the wilderness. And I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill David and completely wipe them out. That's his plan. But then, interestingly, there's a shift. And in 2 Samuel 17, 5, Absalom calls Hushai. We just heard from the guy whose counsel was like the word of God, but Absalom says, I'm going to get one more counselor. Interesting, isn't it? Do you see the shift? Two counselors are better than one. But I would also submit to you Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The hand of the king is in the power of the Lord to turn it wherever he will. Why ask for another counselor when the guy that you've been counseling, his word is like the word of God? What he is saying is, I'll take a small force. 12,000 men is not small. And they are running. They are running and getting away. They have no provision. They can't, they can't organize. Right? We've talked about battles. How did they do battles? You're over here, I'm over here. Boom, we come together. They have no time to organize. Just give me 12,000 men. I'll get them when they're weary. I'll get them when they're still running, and I'll wipe them out. That's what would happen. But God starts to change things around. Is it possible that because Ahithophel disgraced his father and now wants to wipe him out completely, God says, you're, you, you counsel disgusting things and also you're planning murder. Just because 
just because of your own thing. But Hushai comes in verse 7 of chapter 17. It says, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Imagine that. The guy whose word is like the word of God, don't listen to him this time. And uh, Ahithophel says this whole uh, thing. He says, wait. He says, you know your father. He is strong. He knows how to fight. Don't go with 12,000 men. Wait and get the entire army together and then go out and then you'll kill him. And they say, boy, that sounds pretty good. Uh, verse 14, Absalom and the men, uh, uh, Absalom and the men in verse 14, for, uh, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of, of Hithophel. Well, what happened? What just happened? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good council of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God, God is working in his sovereign power. Now, we, we saw the six things that David, that David had. Conspiracy leaves the city, provisions, cursing, humiliation, and there's this counselor against him. Up to this point, as we see things changing, what has David done to defeat his enemies? Nothing. All he's done is run. Who's at work? Who is helping? Who has David under the pinions of his wings? And you would say, well, praise the Lord. I didn't do anything. I ran out there. We got tired and weary. Ziba and Barzillai had to come and just give us provisions. We didn't even have anything. Here's the guy. His word is like the word of God. And God turns a king's heart and says, let's listen to somebody else. And God turns a king's heart. And they say, the counsel of Hushai is better than Ahithophel. Notice, notice how far this takes Ahithophel down in 2 Samuel 17, 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off to his home, his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. What a stunning, amazing thing. What a stunning, amazing thing. And you said, you would say, he must have been one of the proudest men there was. Here he was, honored by David, honored by Absalom. And one counsel of his is not followed. And he just says, that's it for me. That's it. But look at the, look at the depressing steps. I'm just going to get on my horse. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get everything organized. What an amazing thing. Just going to get everything organized before I hang myself. And he does it. In chapter 18, Absalom's demise follows the, the prophecy. Every word, that, every word that God says comes true. And David didn't do one thing to deliver himself until Absalom followed Hushai's advice, got the whole army, and David's men, much less, uh, routed them, and all those men were killed. His final resolve in verse 11 is, Rejoice in God. Here he is praising again. All who swear by him shall exult. 
Now, this is a, a right swearing by God. This is giving allegiance to God in a proper way. This is saying, I, uh, I will cling to God. I, I am uh, uh, God's uh, son. And then he says, liars' mouths will be stopped. God stops liars, and David knew uh, that God did it. He had, he had confidence in the outcome of what was going on. And please, think about that and filter that back into the rest of the psalm. Filter that back in. Those six things, how, how, in how much trouble was he? But he says, even out there in the wilderness, if I pillow my head, I think how God's helped me in the past. Well, what are you kidding? You're with this bunch of, this group of weak people, Ahithophel's counseling against you. You have no, you have no chance. He, he doesn't look at it that way. God takes care of his people. So applications for us as we begin to close. First of all, we need to follow David's lead. When we studied Psalm 86, we said the same thing. Follow David's lead. Number one, because David understands the issues of the soul. It's a soul-centered psalm of a God-centered man. That's what he understands. The issues of my life are the issues of my soul. It's not who is after me, whose counsel, who's this or who's that. The issues of my life are the issues of my soul. Oh, now I'm in trouble. Absalom's after me. Uh, Shimei cursed me. Now they got Ahithophel. No, he never mentioned those things at all. He said, I'm going to cling to the Lord. I'm going to remember the Lord. I'm going to meditate when I wake up at night. And he said, all my enemies are going to be gone. It's a, a soul-centered psalm of a God-centered man. He also understands the value of the soul. So we follow his lead because it's issues of the soul, but the value of the soul. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? If I wake up at night, what is the most important thing for me to have? Uh, soul dealing, soul engagement with God. Oh, I'll go watch TV for a few hours. Well, that's, that's, that's the lesser. That's the lesser thing. Oh, I'll just play a game on my phone. That's the lesser thing. Issues of the soul, God-centered, the value of the soul. There's nothing more valuable than my soul for me to possess, for me to keep, for me to take care of. And then he shows us the delight of the soul. And we talked about it. Praise God, sing for joy, my lips will praise. All those things, it shows resolve. And then the last thing here is the focus of the soul. My soul clings to you. I'm resolved to follow hard after God. I'm resolved to cling to God. The, the larger heading, it's the issues of the soul. He shows us the value, the delight of the soul, and the focus of the soul. And then we need to see that he's a, a lead or guides us in thinking right thoughts because he says, I'm going to remember and meditate. We don't have time to, to go through, but remember what he said. You have been my help. 
I am under your wings. I am protected, and I know it. And then finally, see the demonstration of God's protecting power. You read the narrative in 2 Samuel, at least maybe you pick it up sooner than I did, but I read it a number of times before I realized that David has not done one thing except run away. And God defeated all the enemies. Defeated the council, had Hushai's council, and now it's time to fight, and then God that gave them power in the fight. God can make, by his providence and care, less enemies for God's people to deal with. God can stop lying mouths. God can cause those horrible things to happen. Sometimes he does. He would say, well, I really don't want jackals to eat my enemies. I'm not praying for that. But remember, David didn't do anything like that. He just prayed and blessed God. Our studies in Revelation, our studies even in the Gospel of Mark, show us that, that, that God weaves protection around his people. Even the, even the passage we studied at the, uh, at the conference. Chapter 13 comes along and says, Jesus, knowing that his hour is, is come. It's, it's all in God's perfect providence and his perfect plan. Do I have enemies? Yes. And what does God deal with them? He might deal with them as he deals with my soul in other ways, that he will act beyond what I could ever ask or think. And I would stand someday and say, what was I worried about? Where are all those enemies uh, that I thought I had? Well, brethren, continue to meditate on this passage. The, 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 the history, like I said, reads back into the psalm, and the psalm reads back into the history, and you just say, how does this guy bless the Lord over and over again when he's in so much trouble? But you look at the narrative and you say, he knew that God was, was working for him uh, in all things. Let's pray. <coughs> We bless you, our Lord and our Heavenly Father. We are thankful for the way that uh, we have uh, walked through Psalms before, and we see that David can lead us in the way that he thinks about things. We ask you, Father, that uh, our souls might be uh, truly uh, engaged with you, truly clinging to you. We pray you would even help us in our thoughts and our meditations, even at night when we're stirred. Uh, to think of you and how you've been our help, and to remember not just one thing that you have done, but the many, many things you have done to watch over our souls and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray.